Hello, everybody, and welcome Rising. to From the Ashes. I'm Danny Naki Dan. And I'm the homie, Romy. Hello. Man, it's going? going good. It's going good. Just got a new um, got a new interface, um, so a new recording module, um, and it makes me very happy. Um, and I want to I want to give a shout out um, to our friend over at, at um, Tyler over at Vintage King Audio because he was super helpful. And then I told him about the show, and then he not only listened to the show but he also played the. 50 conspiracy questions with some people at work um, and we're tossing those bad boys around. So that's really cool. Um, yeah. So right. thank you, Tyler. Uh, hope the audio is good. Hope everybody, you know, it's a, it's a crystal clear run today. Yeah. Excellent, man. Uh, so today on the show, we got Sergio from the paradigm shift and we talk about Sumerians and we go over a little bit of inner earth. We talk about aliens, consciousness, who the Anunnaki were. And we bring up some parallels between God and Satan with Enki and Enlil. So stay tuned for that interview. It's going to be a good one. And then let's uh, let's hit you with some RFTA news. News, 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 news. So... What you got? What what's our plant medicine today? Uh, we have a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful plant. It's called marshmallow plant or althea or alth. Man, these fucking Greek. Sorry, these Greek words, dude. Althea officinalis, officinalis. Um, so it is a marshmallow plant. It is. It grows marshmallows. It grows uh, stay puffed marshmallows. On the tip, uh, you can flick it and it floats into the air. Kidding. It does not grow marshmallows. But the original marshmallows were made with marshmallow plant. Marshmallows today in the store are not made with marshmallow plant. It does not grow marshmallows. Its Latin name is Althea officinalis, and it's a member of the Malfichai family. As a group of plants in this family are called mallows. The mallow family includes more than 4,000 species of herbs, shrubs, and trees. Hollyhock and hibiscus are both members of the mallow family. Althea officinalis grows primarily native to Eastern Europe, Northern Africa. It also has become established in North America, Woohoo! The plant is usually found in marshy areas, hence the name marsh in the mallow family, marshmallow. The sap from the roots um, is heated and mixed with honey by ancient Egyptians. Uh, they have found um, old like recipes of it was honey. Uh, marshmallow nuts and like some type of grain, but they don't know how they concocted it or what they did, but they ancient Egyptians did use the marshmallow plant to make the original marshmallow treat that they would have gifts to the pharaohs and the gods. So this is some really old herb. Um, it's amazing. It has a lot of medicinal qualities. Beginning around the 9th century BCE, the Greeks used marshmallows to heal wounds and soothe sore throats. A balm made from the plant sap was often applied to toothaches and bee stings. The plant's medicinal uses grew uh, more varied in the centuries. Later, Arab physicians made a poultice, which is where you take it and you grind it up in your mouth 
called a polstice, um, herbal healing, uh, from ground up marshmallow leaves and used it as an anti-inflammatory. Uh, the Romans found that marshmallows worked well as a laxative and other civilizations found it had a opposite effect on one's libido. So, you know, be careful with it. It's really good for your throat. Um, and it tastes really good. I like the medicinal qualities of the anti-inflammatory. It has polysaccharides, which is good for, you know, swellings and things like that. Diarrhea, stomach ulcers, constipation, urinary, urinary tract infection. It actually is like a serious medicine. But on the other side of the culinary things, it's quite delicious. And in teas for your throat, it is amazing. Marshmallow. Yes. Have you have you had it in a tea, <laughs> sir? No, I have not had marshmallow in my tea before. It's uh, It's got this really kind of like thick – it kind of makes the tea kind of thick feeling. It kind of coats your throat. Um, and then if you do like a licorice fern too, like I think Traditional Medicines, who's a good tea company, they make a good throat coat one with the – ooh, but don't go for the slippery elm bark, man. Like that one is too coaty on your throat. Like I, I personally – it's like I can't touch cotton balls. You know, I touch cotton balls and like I cringe. It's like nails on a chalkboard. That's what slippery elm bark and tea yeah. does for me. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, I got a article here from Ancient Origins dated November 17th, 2020 by Mark Andrew Carpenter. Ooh. It's entitled The Anastasi and Anakim. Nephilim ruins and evidence of ritual murder. Oh, so it says across the ancient world from the rocky deserts of the American West, all the way to the shores of the Mediterranean enigmatic parallels between ancient myths and archeological sites are emerging. One such parallel exists between the Anastasi people of North America and the Anakim of ancient near East, the land of Canaan. Deciphering this conundrum is a difficult challenge when viewed through the opaque lenses of biases, cultural taboos, and overlapping civilizations, all buried under the sands of time and blanketed underneath the fog of mystery. Who were the Anastasi? The term Anastasi is a synonym used primarily by the Navajo people, which has been variously translated as ancient ones or ancient enemies or ancient ancestral enemies. This refers to a genetic and culturally unique group who were hostile towards the ancestors of modern tribes and who dominated the American Southwest in ancient times before other tribes displaced them. Different Native American tribes like the Paiute and Hopi make references to this same group in their traditions. The daughter of Paiute chief Winnemucca, Sarah when Amaka Hopkins wrote about who her people called the C.T. Ka in her book, Life Among the Paiutes. Paiute oral tradition holds that the C.T. Ka were a race of red-haired cannibalistic giants who the Paiutes <laughs> exterminated long ago. Who were the so, Anakim? According to scholars, when the Hebrews completed their 40 years of wandering through the Sinai Desert, they finally arrived in the promised land of Canaan, which was already occupied by a race of fearsome giants, whom we now call the Anakim. The book of Numbers 1332 to 33 
recounts the story of 12 spies sent on a reconnaissance mission into the Anakim area. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come of the Nephilim and were in our sights as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. That's from the book of Numbers. This Nephilim is one of the most disputed words in the history of biblical scholarship. They are also known as the Anakim. However, the etymologies are all relatively flimsy, but the wealth of context clues makes it quite clear that this was a race of giant warriors who preceded the arrival of the Hebrews into Canaan, very similar to the Native American Anasazi tribal stories. Ancient historical sources about the Nephilim or Anakim. In the early Greek interpretations, the word Nephilim was translated as giants. Other later translations include fallen ones and appointed ones or overseers and bound ones or prisoners. The first mention of the Nephilim in the Torah calls them heroes of old and warriors of renown. Apocryphal texts such as the Book of Enoch provide additional clues about the Nephilim Anakim people, but these texts are generally regarded by academics as lacking validity because they were omitted from the official biblical canon. However, the term Apocrypha comes from the Greek roots apo, away, and cretin, to hide or conceal. This would suggest that these books were not omitted due to lack of validity, but rather were deliberately hidden for some other reason, perhaps political or theological. Some things, it seems, never change. The book of Enoch, section 1, chapter 6 through 7, refers to the Nephilim like this. And they, homo sapien women, became pregnant, and they bare great giants who consumed all acquisitions of men, And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptile and fish and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. The academic position on these Nephilim Anakim accounts is that the fundamental literal interpretation of them is deeply flawed and rightfully so. Mythology cannot be automatically accepted at face value. However, therein lies a contradiction because the mainstream academics automatically reject any historical value in these accounts, which is equally flawed reasoning, nothing more than fundamental figurative interpretation. This gives rise to a discerning question. Is there archaeological anthropological evidence to support these myths about the Nephilim or the Anakim? The Archaeology and Anthropology of the Anastasi Early American archaeology is filled with reports of human remains that exhibited unique physical traits and theories of a vanished ethnic group. However, this narrative was rejected by academic authorities of the time, including the Smithsonian and the National Geographic Society, even though it was their own experts advancing such theories. Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah are littered with strange ruins and petroglyphs that are vaguely attributed to tribes that precede modern Native Americans. In a National Geographic article from 2016, Aaron Sider 
explored the odd reality that the ruling elite of Chaco culture had six fingers and toes. Hence the title of the article, Extra Fingers and Toes Were Revered in Ancient Culture. The article states that anthropologist Patricia Crown from the University of New Mexico was originally fascinated by the divine powers attributed to polydactyls among the Maya. Polydactyls are humans with extra fingers or toes. Crown goes on to summarize her team's findings at Chaco Canyon. We found that people with six toes especially were common and seemed to be associated with important ritual structures and high-status objects like turquoise. Six-fingered hand and six-toed footprints impressed upon the plaster walls of ancient structures have also been discovered. However, it is important to note that these structures themselves are not fully understood. It is known that they were dwellings and ritual structures. But why exactly these subterranean ritual spaces, known as kivas, were dug into the ground and why so many were fashioned in honeycomb design is unknown. The location of the structures also raises questions. It's clear that there were certain geographic, geometric, and astronomical alignments taken into account by the ancient builders of these structures. But these areas are generally poor locations for accessing natural resources. It is also worth noting that when Europeans first encountered the Native American tribes in question, the materials they commonly used were bone, wood, and animal skins. The Kiva structures were already abandoned, and these later tribes lived nomadically. In other words, there seems to be a significant disconnect between the culture of stonemasons settled in one area and the nomadic tribes. Many of the Anasazi Structures also show signs of possible destruction by warfare as their walls are discolored by fire. Uh, so it goes on to talk about the other part, but mainly I just wanted to get in that Anastasi and Anakim part uh, because it relates, it's pretty closely related to the word Anunnaki. Uh, Anunnaki has a different meaning relating to coming from uh, those that came from heaven down to earth. Uh, but you still get those two letters in there, the A-N, the An, the Anu, the Anakim, Anunnaki. Even in the Hopi culture, we talked here. about this. Sorry. Uh, they called the people the ant people. So there is this consistent thing where you see An, and that's denoting uh, these same Sumerians and my view. No, no, I agree. Um, there's a, so many similarities between the names that start with Anne and the, the sacred locations of these places being in the areas that they are makes it even more mysterious because yes, when you're not around natural resources, this looks like something that could house, you know, hundreds of people, uh, you know, maybe even like thousands, you know, surrounded the area what cities are going to be there when there's no natural resources around, you know? So the, I really want to do a tour or, you know, talk to more people who have done more studying uh, at the sites that are here in North America, um, because there's a lot of unanswered questions about the ancient civilizations that, that were here. And, and not necessarily, um, which with all due respect uh, to the indigenous, you know, humans that are here now and the tribes that have been around for a while, but I'm talking before that. Like, I I have reason to believe that there's there is some there is a lot of activity happening here on this continent that we are unaware of. 
Yeah, I believe so. There's we got the mounds, the serpent mound in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of different, like, uh, large mounds. Uh, there's a hidden pyramid in Georgia. And there's stuff all over America that they're just starting to find because uh, people thought that America was not inhabited before and it was a new territory. And they're finding all these things. There's even this giant wall in California uh, that's out on the uh, coastline, I think, oh. somewhere in the LA area. Oh, that's cool. There's, there's a lot of things that would suggest that uh, people have been in America for a long time and perhaps around the coastal areas, because remember when we talked early, uh, a couple episodes ago, uh, there was a big giant ice cap over uh, United States and Canada. Uh, so only the coastal regions were accessible. And they're probably pretty so fruitful. So if we start looking in those areas, yeah, we're going to find a lot of stuff. Plus the water rose 400 feet. So when, when you think about that too, if you look at those areas, those coastal areas, there's a lot of, they're even finding stuff around Florida right now. Like you've heard of Bimini Road and stuff like that. Yes. But they're, they're finding all kinds more stuff in that area. And they think it might've been a remnant of ancient Atlantis. Yeah, so, well, there's other. There's a lot to of stuff had. going on in North America. When you got like Florida and the Bahamas and that area down there, they've pulled that area is another one. Like, so there was like an old Greek column, you know, a big Greek style, um, you know, column post that was found. I I can't remember like 400 meters off of. Um, Nassau or something, or one of those islands out there, one of the further South Bahama islands and the Bahama government, like they don't allow people to free dive around there. They were like really strict on it because, you know, they don't want people finding treasure and then, you know, getting, getting rich off of that or whatever. But another reason with that is, is because there's been so many things found in that area that, and so like that, and Florida, like honestly, I think there was a lot. There was a lot of energy going on there. There was a there was a lot of mystery around that. Also, with pirate times, yo, I love pirates. I always like to think about being in Nassau and you know dying with a a wooden ship with a cannonball hits it on the side. You're trying to bucket out water, but you guys are going down. I'm like, I'm a pirate in a past life, a hundred percent. <laughs> pirate or a cowboy, my man? What are you? What were you? Were you a pirate or a cowboy? What was you? I was a warrior. Yes, warrior pirate. We was on the ship. I remember. It. I seen it. <laughs> um, actually, uh, my mom did like a whole chart for me. Of uh, after she did my DNA, she did a whole chart, and it links up to my whole family line. There you go. And who I who I descended from. And uh, at the top, it starts off with King Charlemagne, and then it goes to all kinds of different people, and, and eventually down to me. But mm, uh, King, King Charlemagne's on there, yeah. And Rollo, the Viking, is one of them. Also, Richard the First. No way. There's no way uh, they can married trace King back Charlemagne's so far. daughter, the same one from the Viking show. So then I, I connect to there, and uh, I have some planned pageants. And so cool. they made a candy after the and, guy. Uh, some other, uh, another interesting one is a guy named Kenneth McAlpin. 
and he's the one that laid the de- stone of destiny at the Tara Mount. Um, so that's pretty cool. That's super rad, ridiculously, ridiculously dope. I love that. Splendid. So yeah, I come from a line of of kings and shit. I think everybody does, though. Really, uh, I don't know how that works out, but I, I think that, most people that king do seed all over the land. Royal family. <laughs> yeah. No, man. I think the royal family keeps it pretty uh, pretty tight within their uh, their clutches, though, man. You know the ro- the thing about bloodlines they say is like it's kind of like incest, and they. The crown, the royal British family has kind of been in interbred for a long time. You know what I mean? All those rich yeah. schools. I'm trying to say I'm inbred. No, I, I. You were saying like I was like, as opposed to I think. Well, I think <laughs> I think the royal British family is has a long line of history of being like, you know, I like I like to call them inbreds because they're you know royal vamp British f- fucking vampires. Like, dude, like. Come on, man. You've got to agree with me a little bit on that one. No, that's cool, though, man. No, no I'm no. saying, like, that's cool. No, I'm saying you inbred. No way, bro. That's not what I'm getting at. <laughs> I'm uh, 27th in line from the crown right now. So, you know, if the world goes to shit, I could be king. Hey, I can make the happen for you just for a couple bucks. <laughs> <laughs> for a Mountain Dew, no, I'll dude, take I out all 27. Oh, yeah, no, of course. Oh, shit. I had... Fucking watermelon Mountain Dew today. That's some good shit. That's that's some revolutionary fantasism right there. I can't even ima- I can't even I'm trying to comprehend what you just said. Hold on, wait. <laughs> watermelon <What>? Mountain Dew. <laughs> Dude, Brain. It was it was pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah. Sensory. All right. So what else you got for us today, Romy? Oh, sweet, sweet goodness. It's not as sweet as that watermelon dooski, I'll tell you what. But I'll drop a bomb on y'all right now. Have y'all heard about future scenarios or have you done any research into um, future sustainable human development scenarios that are ran from like the Tavistock Foundation or the Johns Hopkins Foundation, the World Economic Forum? Any of these ring ringing any bells? Vaguely, yeah. Okay, okay. So, so what w- what they do and what they they do consistently, and I, I'm actually fuck. I should have looked up when they started doing it. It was probably probably a while back because um, the Tavistock industry or the Tavistock group. I think I can't remember the the name that goes after that, but it's actually started by the Rockefeller family, right? Um, but what they do is they set up uh, pandemic scenarios and then they run them through uh, to plan to say, hey, if a if a coronavirus were to actually outbreak upon the community, community, we could prepare for it this way, right? That's the that's the way that they try to play it to people. But when you really dig deep on this stuff, it is really, 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 really interesting. So we had Agenda 21 that was ran by the um, Johns Hopkins University, uh, included uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and, and a bunch of other corporations that were also there. They made an entire video on it, um, and they ran a simulation of a coronavirus outbreak. This is in October 2019 when this was uh, going down, and you know, which is just maybe 
four months before the thing. So there's scenarios like that. But the new one um, that I heard about, this document was released on March 5th, 2020, which is funny because March 5th was kind of like the, the one big day where coronavirus like was, it's here for sure in America. And everything changed after that. So um, the setting of SPARS is in the world 2025 to 2028. And for this time period, the project team imagined a world that is simultaneously more connected and yet more divided. And there is a nearly universal access to wireless internet for even the poorest persons in the United States. <laughs> and it, it goes into saying what they would do with the vaccines and, and people will... Um, they will make uh, rumors about the vaccines and they will be anti-vaxxers and they have an entire very detailed universe that's created. That's one of the many future scenarios that are always uh, going down. Um, there is another really good one that I'm going to play a clip for really quick. Um, that's about Agenda 2030, uh, which was written in 2010. And this is a, a very overarching... so. A 20 year, it's, it's less of a future scenario, but it's more of a, uh, kind of sustainable development human behavior kind of arc that they want society to kind of, um, kind of be in at 2030. It's kind of like a plan, like a 20 year plan that, um, multiple countries have signed on to this. So this is a very real document. This is actually something that um, even some mainstream news have talked about. So I'm going to play this clip real quick. Um, here we go. In 2010, the deep state had the Rockefeller Foundation script a plan to introduce martial law and a permanent method for total control of the citizenry. In this plan that they disguised as an academic scenario, as they called it, the method they would use to gain complete prison-like control of the entire population was to infect them with a devastating biological pandemic and then, under the guise of protecting us from this threat, they would be free to implement their final solution, a prison state the prison state that they need to keep their grip on power. As usual, the fascists disguise their crimes as helping us. And as is typical of this new type of fascism, they always make the claim that we the people are begging them to have more and more control over us. As you watch this video, remember that the deep state concocted this scheme in 2010 as a quote unquote simulation of what is to come. The following is proof that the deep state is behind these viral pandemics. Absolutely positively, pandemics are now the tool of choice for the fascists known as the deep state and the private contractors that they contract these pandemics out to. For the deep state, to make an international pandemic isn't even a high-tech operation. It's a no-tech operation. It's easy. A simple vial of Ebola, SARS, MERS, Spanish flu, or coronavirus, or whatever they come up with in their secret bioweapons lab is all they need <laughs> to bring the world into their total control. The only thing you have to remember is if they can do it, they will do it, which means they already have done it. 
So that's Harry Vox, who's been around for a long time. He's been on multiple news organizations. And that's basically his uh, interpretation of this document. And this uh, this document is called, um, and it's written by the World Economic Forum and Rockefeller Foundation. If that means anything to anybody, you can look it up. Uh, you can download the PDF of this over our 20-year plan. Uh, but it's called The Scenarios for the Future of Technology and International Development is the name of the document. Scenarios for the Future of Technology and International Development. So, like, I don't want to get too deep on, on, on this kind of, you know, conspiracy stuff right now. Um, but these are documents and these are future scenarios. Like, that whatever, whatever purpose they serve and whatever it is, it's interesting to me. I'm interested in it because it's just, man, the way to spend your days, I feel like is just not planning for these, uh, Maybe planning for other other things, not world uh, plagues that rarely happen. So why are they spending lots of you know money to run scenarios for it? I don't know. What is your take on that, sir? Mm. Well, I, I've heard of them running these scenarios, and I've heard of like Agenda Twenty One and Twenty Thirty. Uh, I think what we need to do as people that are aware of these things is look ahead to see what they're proposing uh, because they're probably going to be implemented. So yeah, if we look ahead to what they're proposing, then we can plan for the future and know what to do and not be caught off guard. Yes. And for the people that, you know, don't agree with it and think it's all nonsense or whatever, then, you know, that's fine. That's their opinion. But, if, if you believe in this stuff, then look ahead and see what they're doing and play their game with them. Get out ahead of it and then, you know, make the best of life that you can make out of it uh, by just being prepared. Yeah, definitely. Look, I, I advise everyone to look up the document and just look at some of the details in it because it's if you are if you I mean, if it's written by the Rockefeller Foundation, who the history of them is, is so deep that if this were to be a way that they would want society to be, it's very concerning. A lot of it is basically has to do with cameras everywhere and cars, smart cities, smart cities which is already happening. Yeah. And, and all Security things. State. And, and if you guys are down, we could save this for another episode later, but that's just, I just want people to be like, if you haven't heard of that, look up these things, do talk with it with your friends, you know, and then just check it out. You know, if it, if it irks your girk, uh, Hit them with the smart. It's a phrase that's thousands of years old, that phrase. <laughs> All right. Well, that was RFTA News. RFTA. So, here is our interview with Sergio from The Paradigm Shift. Paradigm Shift. Sergio's amazing. This is going to be great, guys. You're in for a real treat.
Welcome back time. to Rising from the Ashes. We're here today with Sergio Halaby from the Paradigm Shift podcast. And we're going to be getting into some Sumerian Anunnaki culture later. Uh, but right now, uh, Sergio, how's it going? It's going very well. Thank you so much for having me. And um, always nice to see other people sharing the same interests as me. Yeah, right on, man. Uh, so why don't you give us a little background about yourself, where you're from, and your podcast? Sure. Uh, I'm originally from Lebanon, uh, Beirut, and um, I lived there most of my life. And then I moved out um, and came to another Arab country, uh, currently in Bahrain. Um, and um, in terms of uh, my background, when it comes to whether it was religion or information, everything, I come from a very, very Christian background, Catholic um, my whole life was extremely Catholic, and but not in the strict or negative kind of way. It was more about more information based. You can call me like a secondhand uh, theologist because my mom studied theology, and she would teach me everything she learned about uh, Christianity, the Old Testament, the New Testament, how to, to you know the study of of Christianity in general, basically. So that gave me a very strong background when it comes to the religion. And then when I moved out uh, at the age of 24 and I came uh, to Bahrain, which is a Muslim country, I also got to know more about Islam in general. And a couple of years ago, um, I was just researching certain stuff and I've always been fascinated with ancient civilizations. Egypt has always captured me. I've even traveled there. I've seen pyramids. I've been to the south of Egypt, to the Karnak, to Luxor, to the Valley of the Kings, uh, to several different uh, museums and these ancient sites. And I've always been unbelievably fascinated. Like there's something about ancient civilizations that have captured me my whole life. My whole, every time I see something on TV, I remember I would stay up till maybe 3, 4 a.m. just watching some Discovery Channel show about um, about ancient Egypt and all the stuff. And it's always been extremely fascinating. And suddenly I've come to get to know more about the first civilization and Sumeria, which is Mesopotamia, current day uh, Iraq. And what I've learned there uh, kind of shocked me and turned me around completely because I felt that there's a lot of truth that has been kept from me as a Christian, as someone who has studied so much and I have been told that this is the truth, this is the ultimate truth. And then I've realized that comparing mythologies to each other and realizing how similar everything looks has been life-changing to me, basically. Like so much similarities between Abrahamic religions, between Sumerians, Babylonians, Akkadians, and everything. And me being Arab has also kind of put a, another spin on it because I've noticed a lot of, which I'll, I'll explain in time and everything today, but uh, even in pronunciating certain words, they've, uh, I, I've noticed the similarities between the Arabic language and the Aramic and Akkadian and Babylonian. So you have these kind of words which maintain, you know, they, they evolve over time, just like how English came from Germanic and, and, you know, other stuff like that. 
So, so yeah, basically it's just what I like to do, uh, which is on my own, uh, you know, podcast and Instagram page and everything is connect the dots. Basically, I know that I don't have the resources to go out and dig in the sand and, you know, I didn't study archaeology. So, so I let, you know, other people do that part. What I, what I like to do is just connect the dots and see where everything fits. And honestly, like it's been like looking at a giant puzzle and everything fits perfectly. Like once you start putting them, it's like that makes so much sense. So much sense. You know, when you're talking from behavior traits that we have as humans, when you're talking about the nature of the Abrahamic religions coming from the Middle East and then expanding outwards. And when you're talking about uh, sort of like censorship over certain topics and stuff, it's it's really mind blowing. And it's I'm at the start of the, of a very long path, but it's 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 really really good. And the knowledge just keeps coming. Beautiful, well said, man. Definitely, I can feel you on. All Absolutely. of those points for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the shows that I really liked uh, that you did a show on was uh, why aren't you allowed to visit the North pole and hollow earth yep. theory? You want to give yep. us just like yeah, a little yeah. bit of that from that <laughs> show? The thing is when it comes to, there's so many things that we take for granted, right? Like, things that we are not allowed to do that we never really question why we're not allowed to do that or how difficult it is to actually do. Like before you mentioned, for example, before I talk about uh, hollow earth, uh, even, even modern day Iraq, look at the state where it's in some sites that are, have are ancient and are so important, either have been destroyed or are in complete uh, lockdown. And you cannot go there as a, as a, as an individual. Do you think that that is intentional, the destruction of those buildings, or is it just something that's more of a neglect, or what do you think? of? No, no, definitely not neglect. You don't neglect sites like these. We are talking about uh, the, the, land, yani, the land of the first civilization on Earth, and this is something everyone agrees on, whether there's a difference in agreement in terms of who built it, were they people or aliens or, you know, like whatever. It does, that's not the debate. The debate, everyone knows that Sumeria is the start of everything. It's where we have set laws for mankind, where we have written the first language ever, the cuneiform, where the first language came. Everything about Sumeria should be sacred, and yet it is it has been at war since such a long time you know it has never known rest even the entire region of the middle east has never known rest and you can you can feel that that there is an attempt to silence and to block any further information regarding those places when it comes to hollow earth for example so many different civilizations, including Abrahamic religions, by the way, including Islam. I don't know how much you know about this or not, but they talk about people who have lived inside of Earth. There are texts among texts among, uh, among, uh, about uh, these civilizations that when you go deep and deep into, into Earth, you find landmarks and you find they have built and... Other, other civilizations and oceans and, and almost like its own climate to, to an extent. 
And you can, uh, there are civilizations in Mexico that have treated those places as sacred and they have treated themselves as the guardians of those, of those, of the gates, you know, so they would, they would know that there is an entire civilization living within this portal, for example, this, this uh, doorway into Middle Earth. And uh, they, they would say that we are the guardians. We're going to protect them from other places. We're going to protect them from other. And same thing when it comes to like the whatever is in Antarctica, uh, the, there have been videos that have been released showing uh, things that are traveling out of, I don't know if you've seen them or not, but uh, like sort of airplanes or any sort of UFOs that leave Antarctica, leave certain black spaces that don't make sense if you don't know what you're actually looking for. So you see like an empty, like a hole, white and everything, and then a complete darkness, a complete black patch, which would indicate that there is something to go inside. And... Uh, like I said, in Islam, it have been mentioned that people have even slept inside the sections of earth for hundreds of years and uh, civilizations who never come out to our, you know, <laughs> to our uh, top world and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, with that, it's um, it's pretty interesting. <clears throat> yeah, also in America, you have that. the Hopi people who say that the ant people came from under the ground. Yes, and you have yes. it. Uh, you have it in uh, Egypt. It's in Middle East. It's it's even in the North Pole. I mean, there's underground tunnels. You have the everywhere things like the mammoth tunnels. Yes, you you have to consider also from a primitive uh, point of view. Like people back then, when you're talking four five thousand years ago. People don't have the same information that we have, right? So if they see something, they're going to attribute it to the first thing that they are familiar with. So when you see people saying the ant people, it's because they've seen things that they don't know what to call them. So they relate them to the first thing that they have seen, right? Even when you talk about, uh, uh, let's say, in, in ancient Egypt, as you mentioned, and everything like about the underworld, right? the book art. of the dead and talking about the underworld, even in, in all the holographics that you see Your and the drawings of, of, of all they've done, you see this kind of like separation between the two worlds, right? There is the world where they live, where the pharaohs would stay and where the, the workers are and everything. And then there's a whole underworld beneath it. And at that stage, people with that kind of limited information about what earth is, where do we land in the stars, what is, you know, underground and in all that, you have to take them much more literally than, than we are led to believe. You know what I mean? I think one of the, one of the issues that uh, a lot of archaeologists talk about and the studies of history and everything is that we we always try to attribute everything to symbolism like it was a symbolism that they would look like this they 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 are holding this uh, this item because it symbolizes something and all that and my, my whole you know drive into my own research and everything i like the message i want to get out there is if we stop taking things so symbolically and take them more literally a lot of things would make more sense. A lot of more things, you know, and I'll give you examples later on in terms of 
things that I've read in the Old Testament and the Torah and about how you read something and you say, oh yeah, well, that's an angel or that's a God. But then if you read it from a, a little bit more literally, you're like, I think that's a spaceship that they're referring to. You know what I mean? So once you start disconnecting the, the full symbolism and taking it more literally, when it comes to, let's say, for example, hollow earth, you realize that no, they have been exposed to an entire world which is underground with civilization, with people. And there's a reason why we always associate hell and Hades and all that with underground, you know, like it's a scary place. It's the dark place. Whereas everything that is light is up, is above us. So, so heaven must be above and hell must be below us. So, yeah. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Do you, yes. do you think there's a sun on the uh, inside of hollow earth? Well, I mean, when it comes to these kind of uh, words, uh, I mean, the sun and, and different, I'm not well, sure uh, I would, uh, yeah. Not, not necessarily yes. a gaseous, you know, star that exists exactly. within. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, think, I think there's, there's, a, a yeah, there's a different uh, explanation or a more uh, association with something, some sort of light that is shining from the deep earth or something like yeah. that. Because yeah. if you read about uh, how uh, people would, would talk about their gods living underground and how they would reach, like you have to go down for days and after a few days you reach a city, for example, that is illuminated like that. So even when it comes to what is illuminating it, we don't really know. It could be as something as, something as simple as a light bulb, right? Or mm -hmm. something as, as, as crazy as, as a smaller version of a sun or something. Oh, I was going to say, like due to electromagnetic hotspots on the top of Earth, you can only imagine that energy gets concentrated the further down you go into Earth. So the electricity and the magnetic abilities that would be on the inside of hollow Earth would be far more superior to anything that we experience on the exterior. Um, oh, exactly, so which could, would make sense why those civilizations would go into those spots because they would harness that form of energy. Right. So uh -huh. we're not just talking about people who came and settled in places just because they were like, oh, it's so dark here. Let's just sit here. There's a reason why people went there and and they would benefit from it. And even we know from Tesla about how much we could be harnessing the energy of Earth, but we're not. So so I'm pretty sure that those civilizations slash beings knew the importance of these sites and these uh, like you said, the con uh, con concentration of electromagnetic energy and light and stuff like that. Now, sometimes doesn't the Just underworld like they, have all to the do sacred with sites their that are on the exterior? Are yes, there is there is a, a, a component to it when it comes to um, uh, to more astral travel uh, than than physical travel, which mm -hmm. uh, which makes sense because um, there are certain places on Earth where if you, for example, I don't know how much are you familiar with ayahuasca? The the Peruvian, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, uh, so stuff like that, or any psychedelic for that matter, ancient civilizations wouldn't just take them for the fun of it, nor would they take them anywhere. Uh, just like here or there. They would know where different spots on the planet we need to sit and go into a psychedelic trip or travel or whatever, including like even when they talk about Stonehenge, for example, they talk about the location of it, that it's, it's, it's very different 
in nature than other locations in terms of even measuring resonance and vibration and frequencies and everything that is. So again, these people went to great length to build monolithics and they wouldn't just do them here or there or, you know, for the fun of it. They actually knew where they were building. Um, that reminds me of a story from the mound building culture that was in South America, North American mounds. Um, not sure if you guys are familiar with them, but they're, they're just getting discovered, but all the mounds, just like pyramids, line up to constellations. And one of the stories that they had was on the winter solstice every year, they would go to the top of the mound, all of the people, and there was a split in the sky that they called the Ogi, and their souls would leave their body and go up through the Ogi and the split in the sky and travel around for a 24-hour period and then come back into their bodies wow. and then they would they would leave the mountain and go back home and I was wow I'm, I'm, that's <laughs> so it gave me chills talking about yeah, it but that yeah really unresearched so it's like it's baby stuff but that's the most interesting kind of thing to me you know with humans connecting like that yeah 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 there's definitely uh, psychedelics back then were much more. Uh, spiritual in nature, you know, and they were, they were done for a reason and they discovered certain things, as you said, in certain locations and certain places. And it's a much more different experience now. Now, I don't know if, if because of sort of censorship, because you do feel there's a sort of control today over what you're capable of as a man, as a human, as a soul, uh, as opposed to before, right? So, so, but you can see it, you can see it everywhere in, in ancient times, how much they, they gave this importance, like the psychedelics, the, the astral travels, the discovery of, you know, the journey, the death of the ego, all this stuff is so profound and was uh, rooted in, in everything that they did. Uh, even, uh, for example, the, the Sphinx, the Sphinx uh, in Egypt, now, a lot of people just, you know, think that it's made as a guardian of the pyramids. And then it was made during the, I think, the uh, 13th or 14th century BC, uh, where one of the pharaohs was like, let's build it. And then we may give it my face as its head. But if you look at it, for example, from, a, from an artistic point of view, you see how much the head is smaller than the rest of the body. And a civilization that built the pyramids wouldn't build the Sphinx in such a disproportionate manner. So now the theory is that instead of the pharaoh's head, there used to be a lion head, and it was much bigger and aligned with the body. And to make it even, like, to, to, to go even further with this uh, theory is that the Sphinx actually looks towards uh, the spring equinox and... At the time it was built, uh, in theory, which was not four to 5,000 years ago, it was around 10 to 12,000 years ago, it was during the Leo age. So when you would look at the spring equinox, it was the Leo constellation that would appear. So, oh. right? So it's like, this is how you kind of start putting the dots together that it makes sense for them to build such a monument for their own constellation at the spring equinox of the Leo. Of the Leo age, right? So, yeah. Uh, what I was going to say, too, is I was going to reference how uh, usually the underworld is like a journey for their soul travel, right? Uh, they usually have to go through hell in order to get 
their soul into heaven. What, like, Theos is that tying to? Egypt. Uh, I'm not sure what other ones, but uh, they usually had to travel on a boat to have a, a boat. And they used to have to go through the underworld in order to get to hell. And even in uh, biblical, uh, Jesus, I think, went down to hell, right? Yes. Um, he, after he was crucified and died on the cross, he actually went down to hell for three days and then resurrected. Yeah. That's Christianity. That was the, the cave that got blocked off was the entrance to the hollow earth? No, uh, the cave that was blocked off was, uh, I mean, according to Christianity, <laughs> I don't know why it was really blocked off, <laughs> but according to the scripture, it's because uh, it just his, it was his grave, basically. So they, but, but the belief is that his soul kind of like traveled to hell and, you know, saved and liberated people who were there. And then three days later, he kind of uh, resurrected on earth before he transcended into, uh, into heaven. With his body. Wow. I, you know, I just had a thought. I was just thinking, okay, so before there was floods, right? There was a lot more land um, not covered in water. What if there was more entrances to said hollow earth that weren't covered with water that are covered with water now? Mm. That is very interesting. That's very interesting because, I mean, we barely know anything about our oceans, right? Like it's, I think, what, 5% of them are discovered or something? So exactly. So you can imagine... How much I, I like this idea. It's like, hmm, we should we should <laughs> head to the ocean and you know, spaceships I, I feel like if they're okay, we're going into uh, but like I've always thought spaceships <laughs> would go in the water, right? And if yeah. they spaceships are from like interdimension within the atmosphere of Earth as opposed to light years away, they could go into these portal hotspots that would be in the water. And then I, I don't know, fly around <laughs> in the ocean and find the entrances or something. I mean, I'm not too far off from believing certain stuff about spaceships or aliens or stuff like that, especially in biblical times. Um, this was this came to my attention about stopping to like we, if, not to take it uh, some of the words symbolically and take them more literally. When uh, I was watching this random video about something, and he mentioned the idea of. Uh, one of the, um, in the, at the end of the Bible, there's uh, the Apocalypse of St. John. There's the book of St. John, which talks about the end of days. And it's, it's horrific and everything's on fire and everyone's dying and all that. But some of the stuff he would mention, for example, which you reminded me now of, which is you will see, it says like you will see fire burning on top of the water or on top of the sea, right? So when you read something like this, Automatically, you will think also oh, there's some sort of magical fire burning without any explanation on top of the water. However, if you look at it from like, is there a rocket somewhere that is entering the water, for example, then you will actually see fire on top of the water. Do you understand? So wow. what, we, what we are misunderstanding when it comes to all the symbolism is that we take them for granted so easily that, oh, this angel appeared or, oh, this happened or a cloud of smoke came up and everything. But when you associate them with certain technological advances of today or, or you know that this is going to happen into, in the near future, you'd, you'd start thinking that maybe before it wasn't as ancient as we thought. You know, maybe there was some sort of an advanced civilization with the technological um, devices and stuff like that, that could 
make sense more when you read them. When you read the scriptures, when you read ancient mythology, would make more sense than before. So, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I, I, I feel that. Um, yo, do, yo, do you mind if I read a question real quick? I had a good question for you. This kind of ties into some what this, uh, this would be. So, okay. So, creation. If humans are, in fact, created by somewhat of a carefully constructed force, um, do you think that we bypassed the primitive life, the caveman, as mainstream media or mainstream academia has basically had our roots uh, believe that we do? Or do you believe that humans started with an awakened consciousness and a connection to nature's rhythm? And did we start with an understanding that what I guess we can call physics or ether energy or electric magnetic fields, and it's slowly been taken away from human civilization? Uh, well, I mean, there's no actually, uh, there's no way to answer that unless we want to go into the myth of creation and the roles that everyone played. So if you're ready, we're going to go into there and I will definitely give you the answer that, that you want. But to give you the short answer now, and then I'm going to elaborate, I definitely believe that we were, to an extent, hunter-gatherers. Yes, we were uh, a, a species of the Homo family, Homo erectus, Homo sapien, and all that. But at some point, I genuinely, genuinely believe that there has been an interference on an on a on a DNA level that has changed our course. Where we are now is a different question and that's a different topic completely and how we reached here. But just to give you a small like to raise a question that I, I never heard anyone ask, to be honest. So look at humans uh, as part of the entire mammal family and actually every animal or living being on the planet. If we, mm -hmm. if we highlight humans, we are the only species alive that have hair on our heads that does not stop growing. Now, we, if, if, as, a, as, as a creature... If we keep grow our hair growing, we cannot cut it or it doesn't stop unless we use a tool, a tool that is yeah. outside of yeah. our body, right? <laughs> same thing for our beards and same thing for our fingernails and toenails. There would just be like, <laughs> walking like 20 feet of hair behind exactly. you. Exactly. So if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, why would you evolve something within your body that doesn't stop growing unless you're using a tool which is outside of you? Even till now, we have shed all our body hair, all of it completely, uh -huh. and we still have our hair, which we have no benefit from on any evolutionary level. So this would highlight to you, other the fact that we have consciousness and we are smart and we can talk and all this stuff, let's say all of this was evolution, right? This small trait in man highlights that the, the fact that there was an interference. And the other animal that does it, by the way, that grows hair uncontrollably is a sheep. That. Is a sheep. So sheep oh, cannot live without us cutting their, their, their wool, right? Like if you leave a domesticated sheep into the, into the wild, it will grow so much and it will eventually kill it because we have bred it and we have manipulated its evolution to make it we reach a specific place. Exactly. Which means that... So at it. some point, we have been manipulated for other resources, right? And animals, especially domesticated animals, don't know that they are 
domesticated. They don't know yeah. that at some point their DNA, like, like wolves, don't know that they have reached into dogs, right? We have interfered. So at some point, something or someone has interfered within our path to lead us to where we are now, right? Oh. Which lead us to the first uh, story of creation and of any civilization, which is the Anunnaki, basically. That's good, man. That's Yo, good. I mean, yeah, that's that's that hits a lot of points. The hair specifically is incredibly fascinating yeah. thread. I, I, I like that because it's it's it is it's nuts. And then if you uh, you look at um, what the, the the DNA we might have been crossed with the Greys, the Whites, whatever people want to call these other forces, they don't they have humanoid like figures yes. like this, right? Yes. But they're hairless, completely hairless. Exactly. And, Yes, but so who is the one that looks like us in any of the of the designs? Which is it's the Anunnaki. The Anunnaki, when you see the 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 carvings of any Anunnaki figure, you will see the long beard and the long hair. It's sort of like almost on a like it's a, it's a ritual for them or something that maybe defines the uh, the status of each one or or where they are or something to be proud of. But it's it stands out much more with them than other mythologies that have appeared. Like when you see, for example, let's say Greeks and they're talking about Zeus and Hercules and everything. Yes, they have, but some had hair or some had facial hair, some didn't. When it comes to the Anunnaki, the beard and the long hair is highlighted all the time and it's the one thing you kind of like you know we can relate to and we, we still have in within us basically <laughs> uh, yeah that's great man uh that gets us yeah. right into well a lot of things but let's let's go into the anunnaki now and, and discover who these people were can you give us a little bit of who the sumerians were and who the anunnaki are yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically the Anunnaki are the Sumerian gods, right? So every every ancient civilization has a, has a pantheon of gods. And Sumeria is very special uh, on several levels. First, as we said, that they were the first to create language. They were the first to create a written language in cuneiform. They were the first to put down the laws of civilization, what you can and cannot do. This had never happened before, in, in, as far as we know, in, in any of our history. And Sumeria was the transition from us being hunter-gatherers, living in caves, into actual agriculture and building monuments and, and setting down the laws of how civilization and society should operate. So this is a huge shift in mankind when it comes to Sumeria. And Sumeria had these gods called the Anunnaki. Now, Anunnaki, from their names, you can tell that there's something different about them when you compare them with any other pantheon ever. And it's the Anunnaki name comes from Anu, Na, and Ki. These three words come together. Anu is believed to be their, the, the Anunnaki's own god of gods, basically, the, 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 the highest one ever. His name is Anu. Okay, and it also refers to base, to heavens or, or above or something that is much higher. And ki in the word Anunnaki, ki means earth. Okay, and this shows up later as well. So the direct translation of the name of Anunnaki means those who 
from heaven to earth came down. Okay. And when I first heard that a couple of years ago, it was like a shock to me because you're talking about a civilization who looked up and saw something come down from the sky, right? Like we're not talking about a pantheon of God that lives elsewhere or in a different dimension. Like, for example, when, when we talk about the Egyptians or the Greeks or the Romans, all their gods are in a different place than earth. Yes, they have created earth. Yes, they've done, but they don't live among us. Like the Greeks, the, the gods live on Mount Olympus, right? We don't know them. They, they barely come down. The Anunnaki are the only, is the, the mythology behind the Anunnaki is the only mythology that treats these gods as if they were walking among the people. So they were seen by the people. They were talked to. They, they were interactions with them. And the story from the, uh, from the uh, tablets of Mesopotamia, where all these, uh, the, all the mythology came, is that uh, the Anunnaki came from a very distant place called Nibiru. This is, I, I, for now, I'm just going to tell the story as it is. I'm not going to make meaning of any of the symbolism. Or, or can I stop you, can I stop you so for one second? They came from... Where sure. are you getting uh, your information of this from? Is it from Sitchin or Danakin or is it from? No, not Sitchin. It's uh, from different uh, um, translations of the tablets themselves. So what what Sitchin did was kind of like he was the first and he he uh, combined several uh, stories together and he filled in some of the blanks that he, that were never found. Uh, but I'm talking about the stories that are from uh, the Gilgamesh. I'm talking about the uh, even supported by Babylonian and Akkadian um, uh, mythology, which came after the Sumerians. So, so it's kind of like all coming, uh, bringing them together from different point of views. But all of them agree on certain things. All of them agree on. This God, what his name is and what was the purpose behind this act and stuff like that. So this is when it comes because, uh, yeah, like I said, uh, when the tablets were discovered and you have the, um, uh, what's called the Sumerian Kings list, right? Which is the tablet that talks about the, the list of the kings that have ruled over Sumeria for that many years and all that. So when it comes to that... The basically uh, the Anunnaki were on Earth, and just like any other society, they have different ranks, they have different people, and the working class of the Anunnaki have been working on Earth for several hundred thousand years. We're talking three to four hundred thousand years that they've been working. Now it's not clear what they were doing. Uh, <laughs> what Sitchin and others have uh, have theorized is that they were looking for they were. Um, uh, getting gold out of earth, something that they need and all that, but there's no actual text saying what they were doing, All they were, that they were working very hard. And then at some point, they decided that uh, the working class said that it's too much, it's too much work, we cannot do it anymore, uh, we need help. And they decided to revolt against their own management, if you want. So at one night, they came together and they knocked on the door of at the time, he was the head of, of the entire pantheon on Earth, basically. His name is Enlil. And Enlil 
in terms of the translation of his name, it means the, uh, the, the Lord of the skies, basically. He is the head, uh, he's the highest authority. Uh, so he was, uh, they came up to his house at night and they were talking that this is too much and we're going to revolt. Now, Enlil, along with others with his own rank, got together to see what is the problem and what, how can they solve it. And it is said that Enlil and his own brother, Enki, they were the, uh, the highest authority figures on earth because they both were the sons of uh, 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 Anu, basically. Anu, who is the highest form of authority ever. And even though Anu was never mentioned to be on earth or to have um, had any interactions with anyone, he is really like the, the, the figure in the background, the one with, you know, like the highest authority, but he doesn't really get involved, him being their father. Uh, he did show himself to the meeting. How did he show himself is unclear. Whether they met on earth, they met somewhere else, he appeared, he, uh, you know... Uh, transcended somewhere, that's not the case. But basically, they all agreed that let's create a being that will do our work for us. So we don't have to work so hard anymore. We find something on this earth that we, are, we have landed on, and we're going to create something that is mixed from our own uh, DNA along with an animal or a creature that already exists on earth and we're going to combine them together, he will be sort of a slave or a hard worker that he will do all the work for us. Okay, so far, any questions? <laughs> One fun thought I had while that was happening. Um, it, it's funny because humans who are also, I mean, I'm not, but a lot of you know uh, people in the science world uh, focus on genetic modification on you know plants, humans, other animals, genetic modification, also making robotics. So humans making robotics to make human life easier, and then the merging yes. of robots with humans, the techno technocratic whatever tech, uh, transhumanism is almost yeah. like us playing gods. The so if we were to come from Anunnaki. Um, who did the similar thing. Maybe we're just playing our godly, you know, I'm not saying I actually, I really have a issue with transhumanism in general. I, I'm yeah. completely a barefoot nature boy, like circadian rhythm focused on the earth, the Gaia energy. But um, it's almost like that's like, we're emulating this inevitable force to recreate something like we were recreated from Anunnaki energy or something like that which makes perfect sense because if it's in our dna to seek out to make our life easier by by having something else do our job for us then it has come from somewhere right so so it's like literally a parent giving something to his child and how the child comes up doing the exact same thing and then like you know it's because it's embedded within us right and even this uh, this combination of the DNA that that uh, we're talking about, uh, what I saw is that in in the second chromosome of uh, you know of the DNA, the second chromosome is the one that is said to have been emerged between our Homo uh, DNA with another entity which they don't know what it is, and it's within that second chromosome where our own conscience comes in, where our own self awareness came in. So it's literally within one part of our DNA that has flicked something within us. 
And to kind of continue the the story of the of creation and everything, the uh, basically what happened. Uh, to, to kind of make it easier, even if uh, for people who are listening and everything, like if you watched uh, Westworld, did you watch the series Westworld? Yeah. I haven't seen it. I've heard a lot about it, though. Transhumanism, okay. right? Uh, it's not just about that. Uh, what I found is that the two main characters who have created the park of Westworld are a direct representation of Enki and Enlil, the two brothers. They're there. Because one of them, uh, which is Enlil, he looked on this creation uh, of a man and he did not like it, basically. He, he even would say that uh, we are too loud, like he's unable to sleep at night <laughs> because we are too loud. And uh, he had no respect for, for, for man. And he basically, he didn't have any emotions at the time, but it was just like a creation, like a project that Enki took on and he told him, I- I'm going to do it. I am the, you know, the Lord of Earth, so I'll do it. I will uh, uh, combine the DNA and I will create this worker and he will work for us. And then it says that um, uh, the, you know, the combination of the DNA happened within one of the goddesses of the Anunnaki. Like it was actually within her and she uh, held it for nine months and then gave birth. And on that side note as well, by the way, in terms of how we as humans are different from other mammals and everything, is that we are also the only animal, if we want to call ourselves animals, we are the only animals that are born prematurely. Nine months is not enough. So if a baby is born today and left, he will die. He needs the care of, uh, he cannot stand up, he cannot walk, he cannot do anything on his own. Every other animal can do that. Yeah. Exactly. Completely, completely helpless. Like he will die. So there is also this theory that uh, from a biological standpoint, babies are born prematurely. Nine months is not enough for, for a baby to be born or else he would be able to take care of himself, even if he's not going to, you know, lead an ideal life <laughs> or whatever, but at least he will not die. So after man was created and uh, he was working in the garden of eden as it's mentioned in the uh, in the anunnaki mythology and in the bible um enki became more interested in us and he kind of like it was his creation it was his idea so he became more affectionate toward mankind but i wouldn't say that it was it was out of love because that's not how would they operate uh, i've heard theories about it is that it's more of a project right like i want to see where this project can go like it's it's just a science thing to him and um it was he who kind of brought this self awareness to mankind and he did it behind and lil's back he he gave us the knowledge, and this knowledge in, in, in scripture and in biblical text is, is uh, mentioned under the forbidden fruit. So we have eaten the forbidden fruit. We have taken from the tree of knowledge, and we have bitten, and we have became self-aware. Now, from, uh, from the Anunnaki point of view or that mythology, uh, we became actually not only self-aware, we were able to reproduce and that is mirrored in the Bible by Adam and Eve knowing that they are naked. So the fact that they realize that they have sexual organs 
compared to the Anunnaki mythology of now being able to reproduce, you can see the, the connection. And this was not part of the plan, especially not Enlil's plan. He did not want us to reproduce or become, you know, like getting more in numbers and everything. So that's when the story of the flood comes in, for example. And after years and years and hundreds of years, we're not talking days or anything, we're talking like thousands, too much time passed, where Enlil grew so tired of this and he could no longer bear the, the, uh, how much we are reproducing, how much we're getting more and more, and this is like out of control, basically. And he was like, that's it. We're going to reset everything. I'm going to create the flood for whatever that flood means to him or how it was done on Earth, basically. And that's when um, Enki showed up in a dream to what in the Bible is called Noah, but in the Anunnaki mythology, he has a different name completely which uh, uh, a trahesis, I think. If, if. Uh, and also uh, Upnapishnam, and I think there's another one also. Yeah, there is another one, you're right. And it's kind of like they're all telling the same story about the same man, you know, but different names were given to this. And it's all the same where a lord, a god, Enki, came in a dream to this person and told him, I like you, I like your family and your, um, your seed, basically, and I want you to build an ark to kind of save yourself and save the others and other animals and stuff like that. And this is where that, um, I'll not get to scripture till the, later, but um, so basically humanity survived the flood against Enlil's wish, and that created an entire... Animosity. Um, separation within the entire pantheon because some people were on Enki's side, a huge and wars, wars came after it. We're talking like destruction, like it was not okay. And uh, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, because uh, like I said, Enlil's um, point was completely to reset everything because he was not happy. And then he has his own brother who, behind his back, saved a group of men and just. Uh, you know, like went against his wishes, basically. And in terms of the hierarchy, Enlil is higher. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, that, that created wars that have lasted such a long time. And I believe that it was the, uh, the point um, that uh, mankind basically was divided into into different religious and ideologies and it was around that i don't know how to kind of like put it all together but there is this uh, pattern in mankind when it comes to religion and uh, and the belief of god and if you can kind of like there's two different types of gods that people believe in one is the god that is has an authority that needs you to pray for him. He's kind of jealous sometimes. He is judging. Uh, he has certain rules that need to be followed or else you will be punished. And that is 100% what Enlil is like. And then there's the God that more Hindu and Buddhist and ancient uh, Mexican uh, would believe in that uh, more on the knowledge side, more on the like expansion and self-development and self-empowerment of mankind and what I can achieve 
not uh, in terms of the help of another god. Yeah. So then do you think Enlil is more closely related to Yahweh or is Enki more likely Yahweh? Uh, well, you have to consider that at the end of the day, uh, Enlil was the winner. Okay, if we're going to go with what happened after it and the wars and everything, and Enlil took over completely. And if you see the scripture and if you see the Bible, it's terrifying how much uh, Enlil took over. And there is a paragraph which I came to recently, which I would... Um, would read, it's after um, the commandment, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. So let's consider for now, okay, that Enlil is the one now talking, okay? And he's the one that after thousands of years, he's like, okay, you know what? This is the situation. There are these people, but to make the best out of this horrible situation, I'm going to make them worship me and I'm going to be their God. I'm going to put down the rules. You do this, you do this, you do that. That's it. Or else you're going to be punished. Right, And there is this paragraph, which after Moses uh, basically gave the Ten Commandments, he, uh, it says that the Lord appeared to him in a tent and told him that I want you to go to the land, which is the land of Israel. And I want you to walk and I'm going to be with you. He says, I'm going to walk with you as we go there. And I'm going to drive out all the other uh, societies that are there, the Akkadians and the uh, other stuff that other, you know, uh, people who are living there, all are going to come out. And then he says, and I'm going to read this because I have it written here. He says, do not make any treaties with the people of the country in which you are going, because this is going to be a fatal trap to you. Instead, tear down their altars destroy their sacred pillars and cut down their symbols of the goddess Asherah. Now Asherah in Anunnaki, she is the wife of Anu. So she is basically like his stepmom or something like that. If you want to, you know, label them. <laughs> and he specifically says, I want you to destroy her. And this I found in the Arabic uh, paragraph of the of the Old Testament, not in the English one. I don't know why, but in the Arabic he says, "For I am Yahweh, a jealous God, and I do not wish to share you with other gods." At no point did Yahweh or any god of uh, the Scripture say that these gods are are not real, that they are worshiping things which are made up. He says, I do not want them to worship those gods. I want them to worship me. Right? Mm -hmm. Wow. So, yeah. So this is when it comes to, and also I wanted to, um, in terms of Enlil, because you asked me about him. Now, this is where my Arabic <laughs> came into, uh, because uh, the pronunciation really makes a huge difference. So usually when you hear about, or you read it like Enki and Enlil, however, it's actually Enlil. There's a very heavy accent on the Il. And this shows in a lot of other places. And in, in biblical scripture, Il is the Lord. And um, when you look at angels that have appeared in the Bible, especially in, in ancient uh, text of the Bible, 
you have, for example, Gabriel and Michelangelo, and even you know, as was he is called as Satan, as as um, uh, real, right? However, the the of the original pronunciation of those words is not that. So his, his in Arabic, his name is not Gabriel. It's actually Jibril with an il at the end. And Michelangelo is Michael. And Israel um, uh, is Isra, uh, Az, uh, Azrael, right? Even Israel, Israel is not Israel. It's Israel. Yeah. Okay, perfect. You, you kind of um, explain that a little bit better because I was going to ask you, does that mean it, Israel is Satan? Because they sound very much just like the same word. No, no, true, true. But as uh, but uh, in the original name, it's Israel, and it's divided into two words: Isra and Il. And Isra in Arabic or in ancient uh, Hebrew and Akkadian, it means happiness. It means uh, uh, winning, basically. So if if Yahweh or Enlil was headed towards that land, he would label it as my victory. Right, it's the victory of of the ill of 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 the Lord. So, even in the names that it means, and and uh, Gabriel, which is Jibril, and all of these figures, which are looked at as angels, and that they're you know on 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 Yahweh's side, are actually just different versions of not Enlil himself, but of you know they were sent by him, they're messengers of him. Okay, and that's why they have that name. Whereas Enki, Ki, as we said before, is the name of Earth, so to to Sumeria, and Enki is Lord of Earth. And this is where you were asking me, and I'm gonna make it more clear now that uh, there is this, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of like a uh, I forgot the word, but. Uh, uh, how, yani everyone's trying, or especially like in scripture and, and Lil and Yahweh and everything, to make Enki look super bad, to make him look like the devil. He is Satan. He is, you know, the enemy of mankind. And the funny part is that, one, for one, there is no mention of the devil or Satan in the entire Old Testament of the Bible. There's not a single mention of the word devil. No one says devil at all. They only say, in the story of creation, in the book of Genesis, they talk about the serpent that came and spoke to Adam and Eve. We have studied it and we have been told through theology and other means that the serpent is a representation of the devil because he wanted mankind to go against the orders of, the, of God. But when, what in fact it is, is that this being brought knowledge to mankind and even in the scripture, which is supposed to make God look the all-loving and all-caring, okay, he is angry with that. He kicks out Adam and Eve from the garden. He wants to destroy mankind. He, when, when mankind was building the Tower of Babel, which is later Babylonia, when he, he said, and it's written in plain, that he says, mankind is uniting against us, and he doesn't say against me, he says against us, there is more than one. And we need to go down and destroy their tower of Babel so that they can be divided and they spread across the world 
and they will never be united because if they are united, they will fight us. And this is what God is supposed to be, the all-loving in the scripture, right? So, so you can start seeing how anything that is empowering man is looked at in Abrahamic religions, is looked at as wrong. You're not allowed to meditate. You're not allowed to astral project and see what you're capable of. You can, there is no laws of the universe when you talk about the law of attraction, the law of, uh, of self-empower. Anything within those stuff that give you power as man are stripped away in Abrahamic religions, which are a descendant of Enlil, because he does not want you to be all-powerful. He wants you to be a slave. He wants you to, to resonate with one idea, which is you are incapable of doing anything correct. You need a higher figure of authority to tell you what is right and wrong. I, as Enlil, for example, will tell you, you can do this. You are not allowed to do this. You can do this and you cannot. So this is the variation between the... the the philosophy behind Enlil's religions and what Enki tried to bring upon mankind, which is uh, which is the year. And there's even in the book of Genesis, in the story of creation, that when Adam ate from the tree, there were two trees, actually, not one. One is called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the second is called the tree of, of eternal life. So there's two. And he says... Now that he's eaten from the tree of knowledge, he might go and eat from the tree of eternal life. And we do not want to give mankind the power to live forever. So again, you can see this kind of uh, very de derogatory look that, that that God had towards mankind. There was no love or anything. And that also plays on the duality that we see within God's because according to the scripture, God came and said, there's going to be a flood. Oh, but you, Noah, I love you, so I'm going to save you from the flood. And then he goes and says to Abraham, I want you to kill your first son, uh, Isaac, to see if you, can, if you love me enough. And then he goes and tells him, you know what? I changed my mind. Don't do it. He does the same with the, with the cities of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, where he destroyed them. And he says, they ha these two cities have... Uh, grown out of my control, they're sinners and they're, they're loud, they're loud, uh, and I want to destroy them. But then he goes and tells a specific type of uh, a group of people led by uh, Lot, tells him, don't go into the city because it's going to be destroyed. Now, we have accepted in Abrahamic religions that God changed his mind, where in fact, it just feels like there's two powers that are playing here. One wants to destroy and once one wants to save as many as they can. So this is where that fight comes in. And uh, yeah, it's like you said with the, with the portray of Enki and everything. Yeah. So then, so Enlil is the Satan and Enki is Yahweh? No. So the way it is, if we want to connect them directly to biblical scripture, Enlil is Yahweh, and Enki is Satan. If, if we want to label them, this is how you're going to label them. And even, even Enki has been, in, in other uh, civilizations later on, um, there is this pattern that you see where he is always portrayed, or anything that resembles what Enki would want, 
he's always represented with the uh, with the trident he's holding it which is a, like for example Poseidon he has the the thing which has the three right the trident and it has been also portrayed in Egyptian mythology in Romanian one as well and everything and you kind of notice that there is this connection with the evil and the devil to this character but this character has is always portrayed as as the bringing of knowledge as the as the you know it wants to expand mankind's mind and teach him more and he's been portrayed as as evil and he's been portrayed as this as the serpent as well and in different um uh, societies later on you see that there is this eagle that shows up and there's a serpent and always in any uh, portrayal you have like the serpent is uh, is winning is on top we have to be like the serpent and this is you know this is this is who we should be looking up to who we should be look like and everything but the the eagle is a representation of enlil first because he's a sky god and he rides above and because also uh, the serpent is a representation of what enki is that also shows in medicine and you see how whenever the, like the logo of the medicine of pharmacy are it's the serpent right rotating because it is it is the it is the symbol of knowledge that's why they use it there so anything related to enki a serpent the trident is enki and is knowledge which we should be aiming to to do you know to 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 actually go after so this is why yahweh is more on is is the enlil version is more the the one god one uh, there is no one else we should only worship him everything is about punishment it's about judgment it's about you cannot do anything without your you know your church or your synagogue or your uh, sheikh or all everything is kind of like the same pattern of control control as opposed to what enki tried to bring so then satan and god switch places so yeah yes and if you're going to look at it from a from an anunnaki point of view from that mythology's point of view they basically each one it's a pr game basically what each one is looking like and i'm looking like the good one who wants to help mankind created you and anyone who's trying to tell you otherwise is evil is the devil but this is not a representation of what actually god is or creator or whatever you want to call it yes it seems that uh that's kind of just the way that the light and dark energy if you want to you know cut and dry it like that that exists within here in society that we have um it, it's like everything is kind of flipped like the government and uh, the way that society is created is kind of the opposite of not expansion, keep yes. everything closed, keep it in this, this type of Enlil rhythm when in reality, the nature of consciousness and everything is that Enki, that earth grounding awareness, that, that, that loving expansion. And it's, it seems like it's been going on for a very long time. And <laughs> I don't know if it's ever going to stop. It seems like Enlil's getting some pretty good upper hands in the current moment existence. But well, I actually, want- I would say the opposite. He he's had the upper hand for a very long time, but 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 there is a sort of like shift towards more awakening, towards more um, 
understanding of these things and people are becoming more aware. Uh, it's no longer this censorship and this mind control that, that it used to be before. Now it's, it's more like, basically, I always say that the way to win this war is, is knowledge. As long as you keep informing yourself and, and all you people have to do is just basically read what's already there. We're not even going out of our way to, to, to come up with theories and, and philosophical ideas and everything. Like if you just literally just look at, at two texts and combine and read and connect the dots, you will see that it just doesn't make sense. And what you're talking about this, um, a control of Enlil and everything. This also came up to me that notice how any sort of uh, mainstream media, movie, TV show, books, stories being told, they take all the mythology of the ancient world, like when they talk about Egypt, they talk about Greeks, Romans, Norse, uh, any any form of of mythology, they they talk about it very nicely, but no one talks about Sumerian mythology. No one has ever made a movie about it, or made a series, or talked about it. Which is, it's crazy because it's the most interesting one. Why aren't why aren't people talking about the creation of mankind? Right? It's so rich. If you want to look at it from just a mythological point of view, let's not even talk about whether it's real or not or what's what it means. Just from a mythology point of view, it is so rich, so so many stories can be talked. Can you talk? Can you imagine a movie made about Marduk, for example, and his conquests? Can you imagine a movie made about the creation of mankind, how how it happened, the war and everything? And it's like no one is talking about it because there is a form of censorship towards it. Like even in schools, for example, we learned about Egyptian mythology and we were like, uh, I don't know how other countries did, but for example, my country, we learned so much. We had to memorize the name of the gods of Egypt. Memorize them. Each one, what he looks like, what he did. We have to memorize the Roman gods and the Greeks, but no one came close to the Sumerian gods. Why? Because... It's clear that it will make you question certain things. Like if I'm reading in a mythology book about Adam and Eve, I'd be like, I, I saw this somewhere, right? Like I saw it in my Bible. How are you telling me that, that this is a mythology when, when this is my entire belief system? And it's a belief system of Abrahamic religions, which are three of the biggest dominant religions on the planet, right? So there is definitely no need to kind of... Um, Put uh, put into question what is where did the Abrahamic religion come from? Who is behind it? Why? Because if people start questioning it, you're talking about three to four billion people rethinking their beliefs and their their religion, and there's definitely censorship around that. There's, they definitely don't want people to question it. Like it's there, we're just not going to mention it, or we're not going to put a highlight on it. Go and enjoy some Egyptian mythology, some ancient stuff, but don't come near to the, to the birth of religion, of the, the, the religion that is literally dominant all over the world. Yeah. All right. You know, awesome, here man. there's the, the, um, so the classic rule of... Um, if you guys love that and you want to hear more, stay tuned for part two of this episode that's coming up in the future. That was the greatest time of my life. Thank you so much, everybody. Uh, thank you, Sergio, for coming on the show. Uh, you guys can find Sergio yes, at paradigm.shift.experience. 
on Instagram and Spotify, Podcast Addict, wherever you can find podcast, you can find Paradigm Amazon Shift Music. with Sergio. Uh, Amazon Music. And <laughs> you know what? Just type it in wherever you're listening and see if you can find it. If not, hit us up. Hit Sergio up on Instagram. See what you can do. If you like his stuff, definitely go follow him. Uh, and stay tuned for part two because, wait, it gets even better. <laughs> <laughs>